Let's do it. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. I can tell you everything about Main Man. Why and what and how and whether it was exciting or not. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. A very long, wonderful adventure. Hello and welcome to episode 40 in our series exploring the history of Main Man, the management rights company which was renowned in the 70s for transforming the business of rock and roll. While allowing Mainman artists to explore their creative freedom, the company pioneered promotion and marketing techniques that became synonymous with the decadence, extravagances and indulgences that are now part of rock folklore. Some people feel you uh, by saying you're a bisexual and by kind of flaunting that in a way that uh, you're trying to... Who's protect- flaunting me? Uh, well, I mean, you say it in interviews. You, you... The only people that ever bring it up are people who are interviewing me. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you're very masculine to me, but... Um... Well, I am a stud. <laughs> Main Man worked with a diverse range of clients. It included Marianne Faithful, Amanda Lear, Mick Ronson, John Mellencamp, Mott the Hoople, Dana Gillespie, Mick Ralphs, Iggy Pop, Lou Reed and David Bowie. And I had 25 cents and a ticket to New York City, so I said, I'm going to go to New York City, I want to make my fortune. In this episode, Main Man founder Tony DeFries looks back five decades to recall the many varied clients he was working with alongside David Bowie, each leading lights in their respective fields. For some people, anniversaries are an opportunity to recall an event. For me, rather than deal with single events, I'd like to recall a year, an entire year, when lots of different things happened, So this is 2021, and this is my recollection of 50 years ago, my 71. And it begins with an ongoing effort that began in 1970 to try and extract David Bowie from his Mercury recording contract. In that same year... I was dealing with Lionel Bart, who had managed to run up an enormous amount of debt despite his very, very successful career. Here's a composer, songwriter, who's had, at one time, six musicals on stages in the West End of London, a feat not to be repeated until... Andrew Lloyd Webber manages to do something similar many, many, many years later. So Lionel had created musical adventures like The Blitz. Things ain't what they used to be. Always with a things because he was a Cockney lad, Lionel. Born in the sound of Bow Bell's traditional Cockney and often used a lot of those rhyming Cockney slangs like my old China. But Lionel had a fatal flaw. Whilst he was a very friendly, wonderful chap, and not romantically inclined to girls, but more romantically inclined to boys, whilst he had the one love affair in his life, which was Alma Cogan, an English singer, wonderful singer actually, and she died early from cancer, and 
in many ways that was the last time he had a relationship with a woman. But he created wonderful characters. He created the era that I was born into. He created London in the underground of the Blitz, where the London underground, which dates back to the 1800s, was used as a wartime bomb shelter because it had opportunities all over London to get into a bomb shelter quickly. And these railway stations, which were all underground, tube stations they were called, became entertainment centres, domestic centres, family centres, places where people could avoid the blitz and at the same time create social situations. And what Lionel did, one of his early successes really, was to take that marvellous bit of Londoners, not just the Cockneys, but from all walks of life, but especially the working classes who didn't have anywhere else to go, who couldn't run off to their country houses. They didn't have country houses, so they were obliged to huddle together. And that meant that everybody had to essentially manage in these cramped environments with kids and old people, with the entire generational set of Londoners, to somehow not get caught up not get engaged in fights, but become a unified group of people, but still with lots of differences, of course, lots of jealousies, lots of love affairs that started underground when a sort of the beginning, if you like, of the domestic drama series set to music. So that was a very, very successful show, which we put on again, I say we, I mean Joan Littlewood and Lionel and I put on again in, I think, that same era, not quite, probably 71, but probably in 1970. So why was Lionel in such dire straits? Well, all the money he earned, he'd managed to give away. He hadn't made any provision to pay taxes, so he had a huge unpaid tax bill. And when we started, or I began to calculate his debts with a view to trying to come to some resolution of his problems, it was apparent that he had literally hundreds of creditors to whom he owed thousands of pounds. And this is back in 1971 when a thousand pounds was a lot of money and a hundred thousand pounds was an enormous amount of money. And if you had debts in the order of hundreds of thousands of pounds amounting to over millions of pounds, that was a a debt that you could never hope to really pay off because the taxes on it would always be larger than the amount you could recover. So one possible solution was to get Lionel involved in a new production in the same way that he'd created all the characters in Oliver by reading and looking at the Dickens Oliver Twist, most likely really, because Lionel was not so much of a reader, much more of a visual person. He simply watched the black and white movies, especially the David Lean one, and picked his characters and then created songs for those characters. And some of those songs, of course, were classic songs. Who Will Buy This Beautiful Morning? It's a lovely song. 
influenced, of course, by the Pearl Fishers and other songs like Summertime, but still a marvellous song. Food, glorious food, another one. These characters, these songs, and that particular show, Oliver, became a wonderful film. And my introduction to Lionel came through that film's producer, an American producer called Jules Buck. But Lionel had watched a old movie version of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Whilst he was in Hollywood, watching late-night television and bringing his friends, many, many, many friends, over in chartered 747s. <laughs> because the movie premiered and was being shown in LA, but it wasn't being shown in England, and he wanted more of his friends who included lots of celebrities, to see it. So he flew them over to L.A. and he put them up at the Beverly Hills Hotel. And whilst you were watching late-night TV, he came across this marvellous Victor Hugo story of the hunchback and the changeling. And So he wrote songs around different scenes in the movie. And these songs were incorporated into something he called Quasimodo. Quasimodo, of course, means almost a man, or not quite a man, um, and refers to the hunchback, and the hunchback is Quasimodo, and that became the title of a musical. Not really a musical, because Lionel wasn't very good at writing all the in-between bits, things like bridges and other elements that you need for a musical. What he was really good at was writing songs that told a story and then other people would get engaged to create all the necessary scores and orchestrations and musical essentials for a stage show or a film. So the problem there, of course, was that because Lionel was generally unaware of anything related to the commercial aspects of shows and filmmaking and music and songwriting and all of those things, he didn't bother to consider that the rights to that particular story, although it was a Victor Hugo story that had been written long before, resided in the film that he'd watched on which he'd framed his songs. And that film belonged to United Artists and they were not willing to entertain a musical version of it at that point in time. And without their permission, he couldn't move forward. This was a sort of problem that Lionel often encountered, and we did attempt to solve it. I went to meet with the head of United Artists at the time, and they declined to give permission for the film to go ahead. And later on, of course, they made their own version of it. Lionel would come to my offices in Regent Street, where Lawrence and I had set up a gem office, and also uh, Marianne, once I started working with her, would come there too. And of course David and Angela were frequent visitors. So one day, in the waiting room, reception area, if you like, sort of more the reception area, of those offices, we have Marianne and Lionel and David and Angela, and Lionel says to Marianne, 
Have you got any uppers? And Marianne says, Have you got any downers? And both Angela and David are quite taken aback by, by this exchange. At that time in England, the reference to uppers was always speed, some kind of prescription or not prescription material that would get you, as it were, up. And downers, of course, were the things that would allow you to come down and possibly go to sleep. But that's an indication of what was going on. Now, Marianne had made a marvellous record called As Tears Go By in the 60s when she had a substantial hit with that and became very well known. That song was credited to Mick Jagger, Keith Richards and Andrew Oldham, but was almost certainly a contribution of Lionel, who was a party to those sessions and whose fingerprint, in a way, is on the song. But Lionel often did that. He often went along to other people's sessions where he was always welcome. He was a very big presence in the English music scene in the 1960s and 70s, remember, so that nobody would ever say you can't come, they'd be honoured to have him at the session. And he was very instrumental in helping people with songs and not taking credit for them. And this was one of those instances. For our purposes, and my purposes especially, the connection that Jem had to Marianne was via Mike Leander, who had done the arrangements for and probably participated in the production of that particular recording. In early 1971, an acquaintance of both Marianne and Mike had come to Mike Leander and told him that Marianne was in a very desperate condition, had been ejected from the place she was living in and was literally on the streets and deeply involved in heroin addiction. And Mike decided that we should try and do something about it so he asked Lawrence and I if we could somehow make a record with her that would give her enough money to get out of her circumstances and maybe go into some form of rehab. To do that, we needed to find a way to create a revenue stream for her, which she didn't have at that point in time. Um, it was unlikely that we could easily approach any record company to support a recording when it was known that she had enormous um, drug problems. And it would be essentially dishonest of us to try and conceal them. But in the meantime, we needed to do something for her. And of course, Mike wasn't in a position of trying to manage an artist, especially one who was in that state. So he asked me and I that I will try and at least take care of her, keep an eye on her. And when I started talking to Marianne, she told me that she'd been pestered by some journalist from the News of the World who wanted to do an article and an essay, and I found out who he was and called him up. It turned out that the News of the World were willing to spend £20,000, 
or to give Marianne 20,000 pounds, which was quite a lot of money in those days, to tell the story, or at least tell her story, obviously around her involvement with the Stones and other folk. And they hadn't been able to conclude the arrangement for a number of reasons. First of all, although the reporter was very keen to do it and they wanted to do photographs and make it a full-out series of interviews, the management at the News of the World were concerned about the possibility that if she got a large sum of money, she would either spend it on drugs and possibly overdose or simply disappear and they wouldn't have any guarantee of getting this interview. Plus which, the problem was that Marianne looked dreadful. She was in a very bad state and bad shape and so getting decent pictures of her needed someone to organise that. And all of this basically made them very nervous. The result being that I said, we will take care of the money. If you agree to make payments and you can make them in some kind of an instalment plan where we deliver things and you deliver money and so on, we will make sure that the cash stays in our hands and we only provide Marianne with what she needs through third parties so that if she needs an apartment, we'll pay the rent. If she needs new clothes, or we'll pay for them. She won't have access to any of the money directly and that will be a way of making sure it doesn't get spent on drugs. And that's about as good as it gets in that situation because you can never really stop drug suppliers from contacting addicts. It's, it's very, very difficult. Even with 24-hour security, it still happens. So it's a big problem, and it was a big problem then. But it was something we felt we could do, and Marianne was willing to go through this process. So we decided we will do that. In order to take pictures, we needed to basically recover or uncover the old Marianne, the Marianne that was when she did As Tears Go By. She was about 17, a super glamorous, but very well educated, but certainly enormously attractive, very appealing. And we need to get that bit of her back. And here she is. By this time, she's in her early 20s. And we need to recover that sort of early look, a little bit older. So there's a street in London that runs, sort of it's a little muse street that runs alongside Harrods off of Knightsbridge. And it was then, it probably still is today, but it's full of shops that specialise in cosmetics, beauty treatments, hair, designer boutiques, and if you begin at one end, and this is what we did, we literally began at one end of the street with Marianne, and we bought her a whole set of new clothes, starting with lingerie and then with the outer clothes and eventually with coats and boots and handbags and all the accoutrements, all the accessories in different stores. And each store, she left behind the old stuff <laughs> and climbed into the new stuff. Then she had her hair done and she had her face done. And we took back the old Marianne. We 
expunged this Marianne who was clearly a different person and recovered a Marianne with a more fresh, glamorous look by the end of this walk down this muse full of stores. Every store knew who she was, every store recognised her, welcomed her. And one of the more interesting things I've ever done, actually. (laughs) Now, by the time we got to the end of the street, she had a beautiful coat with a fur trim and she had wonderful boots and belts and handbags to go with it. And she looked marvellous. And off we went and did a photo session, which worked very well. Time moved along. We started recording an album. The album, in many ways, is probably the best thing she's ever done. But for a variety of reasons, it got buried until 1985. So although it was recorded in 71, it was originally recorded under the title Masks, M-A-S-Q-U-E-S. Mask being a theatrical, obviously French term for role-playing. And what we did with Marianne, who was largely responsible for selecting most of the titles on the album, most of the songs, was record a number of songs that reflected her own personal journey to the point she was now at. And particular songs like It's All Over Now, Baby Blue and the Philox song and other songs that talk about loss and recovery and survival and I think in Dylan's words, leave your dead behind you, they cannot follow you. She had miscarried a baby with Mick, she had essentially abandoned her husband and her child with that husband, John Dunbar. She had lost a lot in order to get where she was, and the album reflects that. During the time we were making it, Mick and Bianca got married in Saint-Tropez, and of course it was a huge press-covered event, and it put Marianne at an enormously low point. Um, And I think that was on the 12th of May that that happened, because that would put her in a very dangerous place. I took her to this restaurant that she and Mick used to go to, which was called Prunier's in St. James. It was literally called Prunier's of St. James. It's a very swanky part of London, not far from the palace. And at the time, and this was, you know, the new Marianne, she was looking very good, looking very glamorous. We started eating, and every now and then, Marianne would run off to the bathroom, and of course... She had still managed to get a hold of something somehow. She always did. So she was probably snorting coke in the bathroom. And she'd come back and she'd appear to be bright and cheerful and then occasionally she'd get very angry or depressed about what had happened with her and Mick and before that with her and Brian. And as the evening progressed and other diners left and we sort of became the only remaining diners and then Marianne went off to the ladies room again and she didn't come back and the waiters were gathering and you know sort of let's put the chairs on the tables kind of thing shut the blinds 
close the doors. But nobody actually wanted to say anything. And obviously, I couldn't go barging off into the ladies' room. So I asked one of the waiters, have you got anyone in the kitchen who have got a girl or a, a woman who can go and check the ladies' room? And they did find somebody, and off she went. And of course, Marianne was not entirely unconscious, but not fully conscious either, but in that state of being somewhat very woozy. But anyway, we took her out, we walked her around the restaurant for a while, and then we got transport back to her apartment, and I stayed with her that night to make sure that nothing bad happened, checked the apartment, didn't find any more drugs, and by the next day she was somewhat recovered. But much of what happened then, much of that comes across in that album, which was reissued under the title Rich Kid Blues, that's one of the songs on the album, and I think it was reissued only in, well when I say reissued, it was only released in 1985, it didn't come out before that. So were you in Trident Studios with Marianne and Mike during the recording of the album? I was at Trident. I'd say not for all of them, but for most of them, because I was effectively um, babysitting. So it wasn't safe to let Marianne leave the studio on her own and go off into... because she might not have gone back to her apartment or she might have gone somewhere else to get something before she went back to her apartment. So in essence, I was acting as her babysitter and her manager and a de facto companion for one or two weeks that we spent on the actual recording. A lot of it was done in a sort of almost semi-acoustic talking mode. I mean, a lot of it was actually almost like she wasn't singing the songs as much as reciting the lyrics. Mike would have done some of the musical. Remember, he'd done Superstar for us. He did the uh, Jesus Christ Superstar single for us early on. So it's chances are that he was using session singers, session players, or session musicians at least. And she was in better shape for that few months than she had been. Um, unfortunately, by the end of, I'd say, by the middle of 71, she had managed to find supplies and she was back in a very bad shape. She went into rehab, she then ran away from rehab, which was quite common in those days. It was hard to keep people in rehab. And I lost sight of her sometime that year, towards the middle or end of the year. Tony DeFries recalling some of the very interesting artists he was working with alongside his management of David Bowie in early 1971. There are some great pieces of memorabilia from this period in rock history that are part of an ever-growing archive of main man documents, including articles, telexes, letters and production notes, a lot of them never seen before, that we're adding to the main man label website each week. It's a great record of a very exciting period in rock history. That's at mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the main man series. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening.